you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be doing a part two of what we started last week on the Jerusalem Council. So if you were here last week, you know we were right in the heart of that message, and I'm going to do a little review and then continue and we'll finish what we were looking at last week. If you weren't here last week, it's all right. You missed a good Sunday because I'm going to give you the running start uh, to this uh, last week's message, and you'll get that as well as this message as well, is we're going to focus on the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. We're going to focus primarily on verses 13 through 21. So I'm going to read that section for us, and then we'll jump in our time together. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God has first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We thank you that you and the gospel message is our story and our song. We thank you that you have saved us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the joy of coming together this morning to read your word and to study it. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand with deeper understanding, deeper conviction, and that you would give us application so that we can live out the principles that we'll look at this morning in a way that would radically enable us to enjoy Christ and to live Christ out with others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, who can forget the opening scene of The Fiddler on the Roof? How many of you guys have seen that movie? Maybe you've seen it as a play. In the play, you can't forget that the father and star of that play, Tevya, rolls his wheelbarrow out to the middle of the stage and he addresses the audience with that now famous song, Tradition. He explains his culture in the midst of Tsarist Russia in the little town of Anatevka, which is populated mostly by hardworking lower-class Jewish families. The year was 1905. The Russian Revolution was about to begin. In the village of Anatevka, this father and pious Jew raises his five daughters with the aid of quotations from the Hebrew scriptures, and he even formulates some of his own quotes that seem like they could be found back in the Old Testament somewhere. Tefya explains that their village has chosen guidelines that were unrelated to the czar of the revolution. This peasant dairyman and his friends acknowledge that the age-old laws of tradition govern their lives. Their traditions give order to their lives and stability for their community. And without traditions, the good citizens of Anatevka would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. Now, no doubt you're familiar with that most famous song, Tradition. So I sing it for you. 
Uh, no, I will not. Uh, but you know how the song goes. Tradition, tradition, tradition. He keeps repeating that there in the chorus. But I want you to hear the second verse. Let me read the second verse to you. He says this, because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we have always kept our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I tell you, I don't know, but it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And he goes back into the chorus, tradition, tradition, tradition. Well, in the church, we have many traditions too. And some of them are just special ways that we celebrate certain milestones on the calendar or epic dates on the calendar like Christmas, the birth of our Lord, and Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. And the traditions that we have, some of them just help us express our thankfulness to God. And even though we may not be able to define or support every practice we do from the scripture, we still enjoy various traditions that just seem right. And when we use words like traditional or contemporary to talk about styles of worship, we are acknowledging that a good bit of what we have done has developed over years of practice. And some believers in the Jerusalem church were steeped in their traditions. They were still holding on to the Mosaic law when Jesus had made it clear that it was now time to transition into the new covenant. And the focus was to be on the church at large and not on ethnic Israel. And with the doors now being opened wide to the Gentiles to come into the church, there were some stoic and stuffy Jews who were not liking it one single bit. In fact, this was very disturbing and even threatening to their traditions. They felt like that if we allow the Gentiles to come in and be on equal footing with us as believers, then somehow we're going to lose our whole culture of Judaism. They were very, very concerned about this. And so they feared the Gentile population as it grew, that Jewish culture, traditions, and influence would be all but gone. And so given those concerns, conflict was bound to happen. I mean, as long as there's just a few Gentile converts here and there, no big deal. But now we've been about 20 years since Pentecost. Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. Lots of Gentiles are getting saved in Antioch and all over the, uh, Asia Minor. And so at this point, things are starting to come to a head. And this, this is the time for people to get together and talk about what does the Bible actually say and what things have become tradition. And if the Bible does actually say it, in the Old Covenant, under the teaching of Moses, does that mean now under the New Covenant and the teaching of Jesus that we have to follow everything that Moses said, just part of what he said, or what is it that we're supposed to do? So the issue was really not whether or not God wanted to save Gentiles. The issue was whether or not Gentiles needed to obey the Old Covenant, particularly circumcision, in order to demonstrate a love for God and adherence to his law and desire to be a true Christ follower. That's the question that's being asked. Do new Gentile Christians have to follow the old covenant or not? And so in order to answer that question, the leaders got together and had a council, the Jerusalem council as it's known here in Acts chapter 15. Now this sermon has three main headings. 
the dispute, verses 1 through 5, the debate, verses 6 through 18, and the decision, verses 19 through 21. We got through about half of this last time, and so let's look at number one, the dispute. Just by way of reminder, I filled in the blanks for you there on your outline, but just so that you can get a running start, there were certain false teachers from Jerusalem that came to Antioch teaching legalism. If you look back at verse one, that's exactly what we read. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So people from Jerusalem, unauthorized, mind you, came to Antioch and started to teach, hey, these Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, the people in Antioch didn't like that very much because they had already been saved. They've been living for Christ for years. They had already sent out Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, and no one had ever told them that circumcision was required for their salvation. And so verse 2 talks about how Paul and Barnabas had a big debate with these false teachers. Look at verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate among them, Paul and Barnabas had some of the... uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So as they traveled there, verses 3 and 4 says, many rejoiced when they heard what God did on Paul's first missionary journey. They stopped in a couple of places along the way. Verses 3 and 4 talks about in Phoenicia and Samaria. They gave detail about their, about their mission trip and many rejoiced greatly in what God had done. But in verse 5, some of the Pharisees didn't like it because they still taught that circumcision was necessary. It's verse 5, but some believed who belonged to the party of Pharisees, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. That's the dispute that we're looking at. Should they be circumcised or not? Do they have to follow the Old Testament or not? Or do they just turn to the New Testament? And a lot of this had to do with saving faith, not just tradition, but what does it really mean to be a Christian? I shared a quote with you last week. I just want to repeat part of it this week. It was by the well-known commentator by the name of Linsky. And he said, to add anything to Christ is is being necessary. To add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation, say circumcision or any human work of any kind, is to deny that Christ is the complete Savior. He talked about how you can't have 99% of Christ and then 1% of your own effort. Or to say it another way, you can't have a bridge from earth to heaven. 999 miles of that bridge is laid by Christ, and then the last mile is something you have to accomplish by obeying the old covenant in order to earn your salvation. That just can't happen. It couldn't be more clear from the Bible that those who believe that any ceremony or ritual would play a part in salvation have truly denied Romans 3.28 which says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So just to be clear, it's always by faith. It's never by keeping the law that you can earn your salvation. Or how about Galatians 2.16? Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, what do you think? Is the Bible pretty clear about it? pretty clear, right? It's a black and white. You cannot be saved by keeping the old covenant. That includes circumcision, dietary restrictions, following the, uh, coming to the feast, observing anything. While while it was important, 
in the Old Testament as a Jew to follow God's given laws, those laws have now expired in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly. And because he has fulfilled the law perfectly, all we need is Jesus. And all we needed is Jesus all along. By the way, all of those things all along were always a shadow pointing to the light that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things are to tell us about what's to come. What's to come came. His name is Jesus. He fulfilled everything perfectly. And now we as New Testament believers, most of us Gentiles, are looking to Christ. Now, we can appreciate Jewish culture. We can appreciate some of our own culture. But none of our culture or our traditions have anything to do with saving faith. And so that's why in verses 6 through 18, there's a mighty defense of three different parties given their arguments of why it is that we're fighting for faith alone as a means of our salvation. So first of all, Peter, verses 6 through 11, he kind of reviews the past. And in verses 6 and 7, he talks about how God chose him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Look at verses 6 and 7. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. I told you last week, there's a time for Christians to kind of sit back, listen, let everything get on the table. Sometimes we try to agree and appreciate one another in different points of view. But when it comes to the salvation, we don't compromise. When it comes to the gospel of justification, we bleed and we die for the truth. And this is where Peter stood up and he poked his chest out, if you will. And he said, hey, guys, I'm going to tell you something right now. And he says in verse 7, you remember that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he's kind of giving a reference there to what God did at Pentecost. Gentiles, some were starting to hear and see what was happening to the Jews that were saved at Pentecost, Acts 2, in Jerusalem. And then Philip went up to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and they asked for Peter to come up and to confirm the work, the evangelistic work that was done there. People got saved, they were baptized. And then Peter was involved with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, full-blown Gentile. Cornelius and his household, they get saved. And so Peter's saying, hey, look, from my mouth, I have been preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, but a lot of Gentiles have been saved, and so we need to accept them into the body. And by the way, Jesus never preached circumcision. Peter never preached circumcision. Paul never preached circumcision. So he's kind of saying, hey, why are we having this discussion when it's already been made clear that God saves Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel? And one of the ways he made him clear, look at number two there, God gave as evidence of saving faith the Holy Spirit. And so verse 8 discusses that when Peter showed up, affirmed that there was saving faith in the new believers there. One of the gifts that God chose to give, particularly in the book of Acts, as evidence of genuine saving faith was the Holy Spirit, which means that many of these new believers started speaking in tongues, which means that you didn't have to wait a week or a month or a year to see whether or not they were truly bearing fruit. God sealed their salvation and demonstrated it with the sign, and the sign was speaking in tongues. And then we read about how in verse 3, or excuse me, number 3, verse 9, God made no distinction in salvation between Jews and Gentiles. So we're starting to see God now through the New Testament apostles preaching the gospel that both Jew and Gentile would be saved. He's removing Old Testament distinctions and just saying everybody needs Christ. Number 4, 
Peter talked about how God did not place the same yoke of the old covenant upon the Gentiles. Again, a, an agriculture um, illustration of the yoke being placed on the oxen. Not only is the yoke heavy and it's on your neck, that it, it's meant for you to do something with it. And when an ox has a yoke on it, it begins to walk forward and plow the soil so that you can plant And what was happening was in the old covenant, that yoke was heavy and it was plowing and preparing the fields for the coming of Christ. But now there's no reason for the yoke to continue to require Gentiles to keep all the particulars of the old covenant because as I already mentioned, it's all been fulfilled in Christ. That's why Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's like, find your rest in me. You don't need to be coming to the law Because the law can never cleanse you or save you, you need to come to Christ, who is your substitute, who died in your place so that you can have new life. And so Peter talks about that there with number four in verse 10 and then verse uh, verse 11, number five, God saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for both Jews and Gentiles. All all people are again are saved as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we understand keeping the law could not save a Jew. And if keeping the law could not save a Jew, then certainly keeping the law could not save a Gentile. And the law, again, that they're discussing is circumcision. It was required to be circumcision, to be obedient to the old covenant. But at this point, we're saying that's no longer required. And it's certainly not a part of salvation. Well, that's Peter's argument. And then we turned and we looked at Paul and Barnabas's argument. So Peter kind of refers to the past experiences that he's had. Paul and Barnabas now report what had just happened in their own missionary journey. Verse 12 says, um, and all the assembly fell silent. So after Peter gave his argument, they were all like, man, that's a strong argument. And by the way, Peter's like the anchor and the spokesperson for the apostles. So they fell silent in, in reverence of Peter's argument. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. They also revered Barnabas and Paul greatly as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so they talk about their missionary trip. They talk about three particular miracles God did. At one point, a man became blind because he was trying to distract away and the proconsul uh, saw what happened and he believed. We talked about that miracle. Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas then uh, healed a man that was crippled. And we talked about that miracle as being a reminder of what Jesus did to the man born blind. It shows God's affirmation of their gospel ministry in the land of the Gentiles. And then the third miracle that was done is just the fact that that Paul was resuscitated when he was left for dead. He was able to get back up and to get moving to the next town in Derby after he had been uh, stoned and left for dead. So these are all miracles, signs and wonders, verse 12 talks about, which are bringing affirmation to the fact that this message of the gospel to the Gentiles was always without circumcision and without Old Testament covenantal uh, ideology, things that needed to be taught, listened to, and obeyed in order to be saved. That's where we ended last week, right? So I know it's a, it's a lot of information, but it's all kind of there. You can just flow through it. And now we're getting to this week. Now James steps up. So we've heard Peter's testimony, we've heard Paul and Barnabas' testimony in chapter 12, verse, and, and verse 12, and then in verses 13 through 18, now James is going to get up and he's going to say, hey, this idea about saving faith was true not only in the past, 
not only in the present, but it's also true if we look ahead to the future. And so we see number one, your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says James agreed with Peter that God saved Gentiles by grace. Look at verses 13 and 14. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Let me just make sure you understand. Simeon could also be translated as Simon, which is a clear reference to Peter. So in case you're wondering, like, what in the world is Simeon doing? We haven't talked about that. Well, Simeon, that's just his way of saying Peter there in verse 14. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So in other words, James is agreeing with Peter. This is James, who was the brother of Jesus. This was James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, as well as the author of the book of James. This was James, who who actually had strong leanings toward obeying God's law. In fact, there are 10 references to the law that are included in his epistle. So he may have been somewhat appreciated by the legalistic party of the Jerusalem church. In other words, James was notorious for, hey, we have to keep the law, obey the law. And again, in that context, he's not talking about the old covenant law, but the New Testament law in order to obey the law of Christ. But he does like the emphasis of keeping the law. The point here, the key idea of James' speech is the word agreement. He is in agreement. He agreed with Peter. He agreed with Paul and Barnabas. James had a full agreement that God was saving Gentiles by grace. He's saying that's exactly what has happened. God's already related this through Peter, that God is saving people by grace. James is making it clear in verse 14 that God was taking the Gentiles. Look at verse 14. He's taking the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, when James uses that phrase, a people for his name, that would get everybody's attention because that's how the Israelites were referred to regularly in the Old Testament. The Jews were known as a people for God's own name. And now James is relating that same phrase to Gentiles. And he's saying, hey, just as God has always taken us as a people for his name, that could be referenced, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the cross-reference listed there. Uh, Deuteronomy 28.10 says, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by my name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So all throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, people of his name, people of his name, people of his name, referring to the Jews. And now James in verse 14 is saying, the Gentiles are now a people of God's name. These Gentiles are a people of God. They belong to him. They are God's chosen people. And so in addition to James agreeing with Peter that God is saving Gentiles as a people of his name all by grace, he also says that the prophets agree with this conclusion. And this gets us into verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16, your next blank there, number two, James stated that the prophets also agreed with this conclusion. So he's about to reference Amos, the prophet. In fact, that's your next blank, A there, where it says um, the, the Amos, excuse me, James stated yeah, that the prophets agreed with this conclusion. Then A, the Amos passage speaks of the millennial kingdom. 
The, the Amos passage speaks of the millennial kingdom. So here's what we're seeing. When he says here in verse 15 and 16, James giving his argument, he says, and with this, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Remember I told you the main point of his argument is they're in agreement that Gentiles can be saved by faith. Just as it is written, now he quotes Amos. And here's what he says. We'll start off by just looking at verse 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. Now, I believe this is a prophecy. It is a prophecy from Amos, and James is stating that the prophets agreed with the conclusion that the Gentiles would be saved by faith alone, and in order to reference that, he's going to quote from Amos. And he's never saying here that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are fulfilling Amos's prophecy. He's saying that they are in agreement with Amos's prophecy. And the reason they're not fulfilling Amos's prophecy is because Amos's prophecy is to take place in the future in the millennial kingdom. That's why he says, after this, there in verse 15, he says again, verse 16, rather, after this, I will return. This is a quote again from Amos chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through 12. That's the quote where it comes from. And if you look at the greater context of Amos chapter 9, verses 8 through 15, it reveals that the prophet is describing end times events, that God will restore his people, Israel, to their land, and that he will bless them abundantly. And that's why he says again, verse 16, after this, referring to after the tribulation, after God's judgment was poured out on unbelieving Israel, he's going to rebuild them. And because Israel had sinned, they, they did face a time of judgment and destruction, again, the tribulation. But in Amos 9, 8, it says that God still not utterly, he would still not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So why God would punish Israel, take them into exile, in the future, punish Israel, place them and other unbelievers into tribulational uh, difficulty, there is still a future for Israel. He's still hinting at, after all this is happening, he said, I'm going to restore them. I'm going to pick up the tent of David, and I'm going to restore them. And we read about that a lot in the Minor Prophets and even in the book of Revelation, where it says in Revelation chapter 7, that there'll be at least 144,000 Jews who will be saved, 12,000 from every tribe, maybe even more. And so Amos is teaching about God's judgment, but he's also teaching about how God will restore his people and set up a kingdom of redeemed Jews. And Amos prophesied that the fallen house or the fallen tent as this verse says, the tent of David, think of that as a reference to the house of David, it will be raised up and God will fulfill his covenant with David that a king would sit on his throne forever. So a lot of times, again, as you move from the Old Testament, now for shifting everything to the Gentiles, some people are like, yeah, but what about the promises given to Israel? Because there's still a lot of promises that were given to us, like this one from Amos, and James is saying, hey, that's still gonna happen but that doesn't take away from the Gentile inclusion. There's still gonna be an inclusion, and that's what he says there in verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So he's saying, hey, the Jews still have a future in the millennial kingdom, that's part of the Davidic covenant, that they'll have a king whose kingdom will know no end. And that wasn't David, and it wasn't Solomon, 
And it wasn't anybody else except the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Davidic covenant is all about. 2 Samuel 7, 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a promise that the future king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will reign and have a kingdom on earth. I believe that to be the millennium where he'll reign over Israel and then for the eternal state forever and ever. God will rebuild his people and he will restore them. That's the point that James is making, that God does have a future for Israel. However, look at your next blank. The point is that Gentiles will be saved without becoming Jewish proselytes. So just like he's, he's giving some good theology here, there's still a future for Israel. He's also saying, but the Gentiles are going to be part of it. And he says that again in verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So there's a remnant of Israelites who will be saved in the future, 144,000, Revelation 7. There's also the Gentiles being added in. And the point that he's making here is simply this. When the Gentiles are added in, James says nothing about the fact they will become proselytes. They have to get circumcised that somehow they'll have to keep the exact Mosaic law. He just simply says Gentiles will be added in. God revealed these truths gradually to his people, but his plan to save Gentiles was from the very beginning. Neither the cross nor the church were plan B, but always part of God's perfect plan. God always had determined to save people through the cross. That's Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the cross was always God's plan, and the cross always accomplished salvation for all believing Jews and all believing Gentiles. The Judaizers, again, thought that Israel first had to rise up and somehow experience their glorious kingdom before Gentiles would be added in. But James is saying, no, no, Gentiles are going to be added in now and throughout the coming kingdom. They will continually be added in. And we read about this, if you will, just turn with me to Revelation 11. Maybe this will help clarify so you can just see a little bit in a, in a cross-reference text here about what, what this argument is all about. Romans chapter 11, we're talking about how even though some of the Jews have fallen, that has led to part of God's plan to save Gentiles. Look at Romans 11, verse 11. Paul's giving an argument here and he says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they may fall? So he's talking about the Jews who stumbled by thinking they had to obey all this Old Testament law in order to earn their salvation. Did they stumble in order they may fall? He says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the fact they're getting hung up in this was an opportunity for God to give clarification and to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And as God began to save Gentiles, in some ways that's making the Jews jealous that God's now treating the Gentiles who believed just like he had treated the Jews who believed. And so it's starting to get their attention of what is God doing? Verse 12, now if their trespass, that would be the Jewish nation, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, the Jewish failure to believe in Christ, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he's just saying, hey, 
through the failure of of the Jews, Gentiles come in and that just broadens the glory of God and the fullness of salvation because the inclusion of believing Jew and believing Gentile has been the goal all along. Verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So again, it's this interesting strategy that by and through the Israelites' failure to trust Christ, Gentiles trusted Christ, fulfilled God's ultimate plan of salvation, and then caused the unbelieving Jews to take a second look at what it was that God was doing in the Gentiles, and maybe by that, that would be the way that God chose to save them. That's exactly what's being discussed right here at the Jerusalem Council. Go back to Acts 15. At the time of the Jerusalem Council, David's house and his throne had indeed fallen. Remember, Israel is really under Roman tyranny. So their kingdom, as they knew it, had fallen, but they would be restored one day, and and that restoration would take place in the millennial kingdom that would still be established with Israel in the future. Again, in case you're getting a little tied down in all the details, let me just summarize it one more time, make sure you're with me. James's point is that the prophet Amos said Gentiles will be in the future kingdom without being circumcised or becoming Jewish proselytes. Therefore, there is no need for them to become proselytes in the present age. His speech is a fitting conclusion to the speeches in defense of salvation by grace. Peter begins by stressing that Gentiles in the past were saved by grace alone, and James concludes by arguing the case that Gentiles also will be saved by faith alone in the future. And if they'll be saved by faith alone in the future, then that's enough for us to know that they can be saved by faith alone in the present. Therefore, Gentile salvation in the present must also be by grace alone. Now, that's the dispute, the debate, and now let's look at this decision. How does all this kind of translate into a very practical way of going forward with all of this detail. The decision, verses 19 through 21, first of all, your next blank says, a doctrinal decision about salvation. A doctrinal decision about salvation, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So this is James's conclusion. He's basically saying, we don't need circumcision. We don't need the Mosaic law based on all these arguments of Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and then James' argument from Amos. He's saying that settles it. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Galatians 1, Galatians 1, verse 6. Again, he's saying here, uh, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. Look at Galatians 1, 6 through 12. Again, it's by grace alone, not through circumcision, where where Paul says to the churches of Galatia, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Again, Paul saying, I can't believe that you would turn from the gospel of grace and get your feet tripped up again in Old Testament Mosaic law because if you're preaching that as a part of saving grace, that's a different gospel. Verse seven, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Again, he's talking about the Judaizers distorting the gospel by saying it's Jesus plus old covenant. 
But even if we are an angel, verse 8 of Galatians 1, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is a serious word, this idea of anathema, to be cursed. It literally means to be damned to hell forever. So what he's saying is that this idea of adding circumcision to the gospel will send you to hell. And he's saying anybody that believes that is going to hell because it's all about the grace of Christ in his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection that saves you. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Again, in today's world, you know, I know this is all like an ancient argument. Not all of us are struggling with Mosaic law and New Testament law, but you might be struggling with something else. You may have some other type of tradition. You may have some other type of conviction based on culture, based on popularity, based on morality, and a whole lot of people can add a whole lot of things to the Bible to say, oh, you also have to follow certain councils of church history as a lot of the Roman Catholics may say, or you may have to obey the seven sacraments, as a Roman Catholic would say, in order to hopefully infuse enough grace so you don't have to spend a whole lot of time in purgatory. Now look, we love people who are from all kinds of backgrounds, but any Roman Catholic holding to the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification, which is a justification by works, is committing their soul to hell because it's Christ alone. And this is why the Reformation took place. I quoted to you last week, Luther and Calvin, saying this is what it's all about. This is a fight for what is the true faith. If anybody be a Jew and they're not completed in Christ, though they be a good person and we share a common Judeo-Christian ethic, if they don't trust in Christ alone for saving faith, then every law-abiding citizen who is a Jew is on their way to hell. This is what he's saying. If anybody's a Mormon and you're adding to God's word, the Book of Mormon, extra works that you have to do called a word of wisdom and a word of, of uh, you know, different laws that they keep and have to follow, avoiding caffeine, not drinking alcohol, going on a two-year mission trip, and you're adding all this stuff to the saving faith of Christ, then you're on your way to hell. You're accursed. That's what he's saying in Galatians. That's why this is so serious because in today's world and church, we're like, well... You know, they're, they're good people, right? Okay, we got the Catholics, we got the Jews, we got the Mormons, we got the Jehovah Witness. I mean, aren't we kind of all different denominations anyway? And the answer is no. We are different religions. One is a religion of faith alone and Christ alone to bring you to salvation. One is a religion of works. Now, I know you're sitting out there and you're like, man, this guy is just like ranting and raving. Well, aren't we supposed to rant and rave over false doctrine? when it has to do with saving faith in the gospel. So when you're at work, I'm not saying you should be like this. My attitude is a little ornery right now and I'm cutting with a sharp knife with the word. You wanna win them by asking questions, talking about what do you base your salvation on? Look at what the Bible says about Christ. What, why, why is it that you would add to that something in addition to Jesus in order to earn your way to salvation? That's basically saying you can get there with your own effort, but you can't. My message to you is, it's Christ alone. That is a freeing message. That's a glorious message. That's a message that we'll preach with our dying breath. It's Christ and him alone. 
That's what he's preaching here. And Paul can't believe that anybody would be doing anything else. In fact, look at, I'm still in Galatians, I guess. Look at verse 10, chapter one, verse 10. For I am now, for, excuse me, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? In other words, if you give in to this argument, you're seeking their approval, their acceptance, their ecumenical argument. And if you're doing that, then you're fearing man more than God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He's saying you can't serve Christ and wrap your arms around all these various beliefs about salvation and somehow be a servant of Christ. You can't do that. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this argument of Paul's in Galatians 1, 6 through 12, if you come back to Acts now, back to Acts 15, this is exactly what James is saying when he says he agrees with with what, with what was said in Acts 15, 19. That's what he's saying here. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So I think we could say the doctrinal decision in James's mind is completely made up. Salvation by faith alone, Christ alone, by grace alone, 100% done. Now it's an important point because now he pivots And he pivots from the doctrinal decision that was made, verse 19, but in verses 20 through 21, he now gives, your next blank says, a practical decision about how to live the Christian life. Hopefully, again, for those of us here, we all agree on the doctrinal decision. We've been over it, over it, over it, over it, faith alone, Christ alone, no circumcision, no Old Testament covenant, just Christ, praise the Lord. Now, James says, I want to also make a practical decision that will be helpful for the early church as well. Number one, the new Gentile converts should dot, dot, dot. There's three, or you could say four things they should do. Number one, or A, says abstain from things polluted by idols. You see that there in verse 20? He says, but they should, we should write to them. So we're going to put something on paper, make this plain as day, write a doctrinal statement. And here's what we want it to say. We want it to say that they should, these new believing Gentiles, they don't have to be circumcised, but they should abstain from the things polluted by idols. This would refer to food that was offered to pagan gods and then sold in the temple butcher shops. Now remember, Idolatry was a repulsive, blasphemous matter to the God-fearing Jew, just as it is to God. Their their idolatry is completely unacceptable. In the Old Testament, just kind of track with me here, if you will, the Old Testament is filled with warnings against God's people falling into idolatry. That's why he even includes it in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 34, 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. And not only that, but it was the idolatry of the nation of Israel that really led to their destruction. The reason that they went into exile is because they exchanged their worship of God for the worship of idols. And in 2 Kings talks about that. 2 Kings chapter 17, you can turn there if you want. 2 Kings 17, 7 through 13 says, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, 
who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel they had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. So he's kind of referencing the history of why they went into exile. They exchanged the glory of God for an idol. And they did what was not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars of ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. This is just horrifying. Israelites who are supposed to serve the supreme God fell away from that supreme God, began to worship and set up idols to other gods. And they made offerings on all the high places of the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them, and they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. So they sacrificed to these false gods, and they worshiped these false gods, and it made the true God angry. Second Kings 7:12, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet. And every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. That whole passage is saying, Israel went astray, they served idols, and they sacrificed to them. Now, at least to some degree, their lesson had been learned. The Jews understood God hates idolatry. And while the Jews, not all of them, had been truly saved by Christ, they understood that God hated idolatry. The Jews wanted, wanted, therefore, they wanted to have nothing to do with idolatry. And this led to them naturally not wanting to be near a pagan temple and to avoid any practice associated with the worship of false gods, including meat sacrifice to idols. It had left us such a bad taste in their past. They knew it had led them astray. They had decided, even for the believing Jews now, that, you know what, we can't be eating this meat sacrificed to idols because it led us astray in the past. God punished us for us, and we're not going to do that again. Now, you might be thinking, if you're a Bible student, you're like, yeah, but doesn't Paul talk about something in the future or past this present date, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that... There is a new argument that's given. So why is he telling them back here at the Jerusalem Council? He's saying, hey, look, you need to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Because later, and you're familiar with it, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where um, they were having, again, this discussion about whether or not they could eat meat sacrificed by idols. And then later, Paul allows them. So the question is, why is it forbidden initially and then it's allowed later, and everything has to do with maturity. The idea of the church growing and maturing later on, Paul did say, and he made it clear, that food will not commend us to God, for we are no worse off if we do eat and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees that you have knowledge and you're eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So by your knowledge, this weak person is being destroyed. 
the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Again, I just want to emphasize, this is a later development. This is a later development. But as the timing of the Jerusalem council, James is making it clear, hey, at least for right now, let's talk about circumcision. We're done with that. But we don't want believing Gentiles to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Can you at least do that for now? That's what he's asking them to do. He's not saying it's a, a point of salvation, but it's a point of fellowship. And it's a point of like the best thing we could do is make it crystal clear salvation's only by grace through faith. But initially, let's not eat that meat sacrificed to idols. Later, he says it's okay. Initially, he says not yet. We're not ready for that yet as a church. He moves on, gives a second practical decision that he makes here. In the middle of verse 20 again, not only are they to avoid things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. So your next blank says avoid sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality describes sexual sin in general. In other words, it includes all forms of sexual sin. There was an abundance of sexual sin, which was specifically associated with the worship of pagan gods. Sexual immorality was an integral part of pagan Gentile worship. And Paul addresses this further, the idea and the seriousness of turning away from sexual immorality. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, just to see how adamant uh, we ought to be against sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Please, people, understand. The context of your body is a temple is not about your diet. Just please get that, right? Not about eating organic or clean food. Right, as we use that all the time. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Check out this chiseled rock. It has nothing to do. Look, you might have a chiseled body, but it ain't coming from 1 Corinthians 6. All right? 1 Corinthians 6 is saying, don't join your body in any sexually immoral way with another person that you're not married to, which would only be for a husband who is born a male and identifies as a male, with a wife who's born as a female and identifies as a female. Can you believe I have to define that today? You know, that is what marriage is about and that's where that union takes place. Anything outside of that is defiling your very body. And what was happening in the New Testament time 
as is today, is it was a common practice associated with idolatry. They would worship false gods, go to pagan temples, there would be priestesses who would be there who would interact, forgive me, but in sexual acts as a way of worship to that pagan god. And he's saying, look guys, we have to separate ourselves completely from this. So we're not gonna eat meat that is sacrificed to idols and we're not gonna be sinning with sexual immorality now, one of those in the future, my watch is trying to speak up, uh, one of those in the future is um, going to be done away with. The dietary restriction, as we just talked about, 1 Corinthians 8 says, now you can eat meat sacrificed to idols, then you couldn't. The sexual immorality thing, it never changes. That is a constant from the very beginning of time until Christ comes back. So there is no other passage past this that says somehow, oh, in the future, we're going to change our definition of sexual immorality. That is meant to be a constant thing, not only that is practice with your body, but Jesus talks about, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Serious command here, if you will, for the uh, believing Gentiles to no longer practice in any type of ongoing sexual immorality. All right, you got it? Number three, the third decision that was made, I'm coupling these two together, abstain from meat that had been strangled and filled with blood. I think that's a one in the same argument. Again, the end of verse 20, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, the prohibition against eating blood was actually given initially by God before the time of the law. It's referenced in the Noahic covenant of Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So that's initially where that command comes in. Later, Moses doubles down on that in Leviticus 17, 11 through 14, right in the middle of giving the law. And he basically says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes the atonement by life. So he's saying there's something about this idea of a sacrifice and atonement. It's meant to be a sacrifice to God for your atonement. It's not something for you to participate in by strangling an animal and eating it with its blood still in it because you're, you're muddying the picture of what an atoning sacrifice is supposed to be. That's what he's saying. So he's saying don't eat uh, animals that have been strangled and don't eat the animal with the blood still in it. If an animal is killed by strangulation, some of the blood will remain in the body making the meat unfit for Jews to eat. Hence, the law against strangulation. Kosher meat is meat that comes from clean animals that have been killed properly so that the blood has been totally drained from the body. What he's saying is, don't tamper with the picture of the atonement. And what he's saying is, human beings are not animals. And God didn't want his people to eat like animals. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a rare steak. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about specifically this paganistic activity of strangling an animal and then eating it raw with the blood still in it. It is a defilement to God. Some would argue since it was given initially during the times of Noah, 
that it was uh, meant to be a, a forever principle, not just in the Mosaic covenant and then done away with as now human beings can go around and eat um, animals that have been strangled with blood. So many would argue that that still should not happen today because it defiles, again, the picture of the atonement from the Leviticus passage. All right, so these are all things that he's talking about. He's saying, hey, we've made a clear decision about salvation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, but we're gonna make some practical decisions about this idea of not eating meat sacrificed to idols, not uh, associating with any type of sexual immorality, and not eating any meat that had been strangled with the blood still in it. And why is it so important for him to write that they would follow these three or four things? We'll look at verse 21, your next blank. They should do this because the Mosaic scriptures, your next blank, the Mosaic scriptures were still being read in the synagogues. So you know that, verse 21, for from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So the Old Testament was still being read in every city in that part of the world. And during the time of the transition between the Old and the New Covenants, the synagogues were the central place for both Jews and some believing Gentiles. The synagogue is even the place that Barnabas and Paul would go to on their missionary journeys. And we talked about that. You can look at the cross-references. When they came to town, they first went into the synagogue. And they're saying, oh, look, if these Jews are still reading Mosaic law in the synagogue, we don't want to contradict these four things. We'll, we'll contradict circumcision, but we're not going to contradict meat sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, or animals that have been strangled with the blood still in it because this this is a way we can reach them, what he's saying. It's a way we can reach them by observing these things. And then look at your next blank. It says, the early church was still mixing with Jews in the synagogues and in their homes. Keep in mind that the early church did a great deal of eating together and practicing hospitality. Most churches met in homes and some gatherings would even have a love feast in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And they, they may have not been much different, you know, the, 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 the feast they would have before the Lord's Supper is us getting together to have a meal today. And in addition to that, if we were to have the Lord's table. And if the Gentiles, uh, if, if, the, if the new believers ate food, in those contexts that the Jewish believers considered unclean, this would cause great division in the church. And so Paul, again, deals with this whole problem in Romans 14 and Romans 15, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what I think we could summarize from today, though. It is a beautiful thing to see that the decision was made in, in a way that was expressing loving unity of people who had once been debating each other and defending their opposing views. Think about it. The legalistic Jews willingly gave up the fact that they insisted that Gentiles had to be circumcised to be saved. So they gave that up. And the Gentiles willingly accepted a change in their eating habits. It was a loving compromise that did not in any way affect the truth of the gospel. As every married couple knows and every parent knows there are times in a home when compromise is wrong and there's a whole lot of times in a home when compromise is a good loving thing to do and in this situation this is a good loving thing to do that James writes out he writes this out spells it out so that those practical considerations could be observed to show love and unity well listen I started off this sermon by singing to you tradition all right, and again, in, in that play, tradition, again, 
Tevye in the Fiddler on the Roof, while the main theme of the play does seem to be, and it would be, I would argue, it's about tradition, it is apparent that tradition uh, begins to change in his mindset and perspective throughout the play. As the plot unfolds and as times begin to change in Anatevka, traditions are questioned and adjusted. Tevya, the main follower and advocate of tradition, is tested throughout this play and forced to change his views and his standards. Therefore, while it may seem like tradition is the main theme of the play, in most cases, love ultimately triumphs. Basically, he's got the five daughters. Remember, they want to get married, but in a way they're a little different than his tradition. And he finally gives in. And he says, hey, it's okay to love. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying we're going to change truth of Scripture. I'm saying that there are some traditions that sometimes we hold too highly that we need to to let uh, us re-examine them in light of Scripture because the main goal is not that they're human, your human, my human traditions would last. It's that love would last. That's the point. The point is we need to preserve unity by loving one another because God's word is all about loving each other. It's about loving God, that would be holding to his truth of the gospel, and loving one another by finding a healthy compromise, which the Jerusalem Council did, in some of these particulars that would help promote a loving unity in the church. So our application has to be you know what, how can I, are, are there some strong preferences? Look at the take home. Are there some strong preferences that you have today that might be considered legalism in your life? When you just examine some of the holy habits you've formed as a family, that that has become such an integral part of your identity that, and you hold so firmly to it that it has maybe become somewhat legalistic for you to where you would actually break fellowship with other people or not want to be around other people who may practice some of those same things in a different way. Secondly, are you able to welcome all people of all backgrounds into the church if they come by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have an an openness to that, a desire to fellowship based on Christ, not on some of all of our particulars? And then third, are you doing a good job distinguishing between doctrinal distinctives and practically living out the Christian life? Because if you confuse the two, then you're confusing what it means to be saved by faith, not by your tradition. And so may God help us as we want to take note from what we've learned from the Jerusalem Council, apply it in our own context in our life today. And if you're, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, we want to encourage you that today could be your day. could be the day that you come to Christ by turning from your sin, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for your saving grace. That, that's, what, that's what salvation is. It's not about your work, your heritage, your, your own self. It's about surrendering all that you are, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And after we sing our last song to, today, there'll be a few people standing right up here next to this door. We would love to talk to you about how you could become a Christian today by trusting in Christ. Or if you're here and you need prayer, you need encouragement, there's a way we could come alongside you in a difficult situation. Don't hesitate to come up after our last song. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Why don't I close this now? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the beauty of the Jerusalem Council. And while there's much to study and listen and learn and go back and read over and study some more, certainly we can leave today thankful that we're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. And that that saving work of Christ on the cross, we would see, has always been enough 
always been sufficient to save our souls from hell. Help us to never be confused or distracted by the arguments of men, but to come back again and again to your word. And then in the last part of our study this morning, help us to think of practical considerations, maybe even some human traditions that we put on par with scripture. God, we want those to be torn down in our minds today. Let love triumph over tradition. Let love be obviously always centered on Christ in scripture. And as we follow Christ in scripture, God, may we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourself. So be glorified in our fellowship as we continue to digest and apply these things in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.